Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Great pleasure to have all of you with us for another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a special treat today, a little bit of a different episode where we have one single topic we want to focus on, and that's what it's like to be an emerging manager. Um, Elliot and Phil are going to speak about their experience. I'll chime in as well, um, sitting kind of uh, within the MOI community and uh, knowing a lot of emerging managers through that. And I just hope we provide a lot of great uh, insights for all of you that want to learn more about how to succeed as an emerging manager. Uh, Before we get into it, I'm just going to go to Elliot for a quick announcement. Awesome. Thank you, John. Hello, everyone. Um, I know some of you follow me on Twitter. Some of you don't. Just want to make sure you're all aware. Uh, On July 9th, the pitches are due for the FinTwit Stock Pitch Challenge. They're $15,000 in cash prizes and interesting, unique uh, extras from our sponsors, Tegas and Canalyst. And on July 15th in Twitter Spaces, we'll have the five finalists present their ideas. So, you know, this is about emerging managers, maybe a great way to get exposure as an emerging manager out there might be to submit an idea and try to win this competition. So hopefully you're all preparing your best, be prepared to submit it and follow the Twitter handle at stock underscore pitch and look there for updates. Thank you, John. And over to Phil to get the actual topic launched here. Great. Thanks, Elliot. So yeah, this came about, you know, we were, we've been kicking around this topic for a while. It's obviously something I get asked about a lot. I'm sure you guys both do as well. And it's, it's just sort of, you know, what's it like starting and managing a fund? I've never been crazy about the emerging manager tag. It just doesn't seem to really capture the landscape, right? I mean, I've, I've seen people characterized as emerging managers when they launch with $500 million of seed capital. And, you know, then there's emerging managers that launch with $500,000 of capital. So, you know, it, starting and managing a fund from scratch is what we're here to talk about today. And hopefully this proves valuable to anybody out there that's either going through it or thinking about it or has already done it and, and can just laugh at how foolish and naive we were or still are. So, uh, we've got a whole long list of questions that that people chimed in with. We'll try to tackle them all. Uh, and and by way of background, this was you know a common one that several people asked. They just kind of wanted to hear from us as to what our stories were and how we got started, and then would we do it all again, knowing what we know in hindsight. And so yeah, I mean, in terms of how it got started, um, you know, I had a somewhat of a business background. Uh, went back to business school not knowing what I wanted to do with myself, and then read Roger Lowenstein's biography of Warren Buffett. And that's when the scales fell from my eyes and I knew exactly with complete instant eureka clarity that this is exactly what I wanted to do the rest of my life. And I knew kind of right then that I wanted to eventually uh, manage capital and do this you know, on my own and be my own boss. I'd kind of always had that itch. And then this, this just crystallized everything for me. I knew, of course, that I probably couldn't do that exactly on day one. And so I um, started looking for and ultimately got uh, a great job as an analyst right out of school with a firm here called Chicago Fundamental Investment Partners, which the the it was a wordy 
title for the firm, but it did capture pretty well what we did. It was a, actually a credit and distressed debt focused fund. So I was an analyst and then a partner there for about six or seven years. And toward the end of that time, right as I was uh, becoming a partner, I, you know, I, I kind of just had to level with them and say, look, you know, in the next couple of years, I had planned on doing something on my own to my great surprise and to their great credit, they they were actually super supportive and said, oh, that's great. You know, we'll invest personally and, and give you some operational leeway here. So for the first year, year and a half, um, I was actually under their umbrella, like using their back office, sharing office space, picking their brains on a daily basis, because the leap from analyst to portfolio manager is obviously gigantic. And the leap from portfolio manager to head of a firm is even bigger. And so avoiding those operational pitfalls and those startup pitfalls was absolutely huge. Um, And we'll talk more about that as we go. Um, So I I just always had that itch. I mean, it was just something I kind of had to do um, to satisfy my own curiosity and interest and desire. So even though there have been countless sleepless nights, literally heartbreak, frustration, you know, all the stuff that comes with it, I would absolutely do it again. Um, so, and we'll talk later on with a few more of the the questions that we get into as to, you know, why you might want to do it or why you might not want to do it. But for me, the answer is totally clear. What about you, Elliot? So, yeah, my origin story is quite messy. Um, I went to law school. I wasn't trained in the finance world. My first exposure to stocks was in the fourth grade Newsday stock market game. And I became obsessed then. I was fortunate that at the time of my bar mitzvah, when I was in the seventh grade, I had some family uh, gifts that I was able to play around with. So I bought Microsoft and Intel, and that hooked me on the stock market. When I graduated law school, I took my first job. And I haven't spoken publicly about this yet, but my first job was with Lenny Dykstra, and I was running business development for his uh, foray into a finance-slash-media business. And it was an absolute disaster. And I got fired on Thanksgiving 2007. And I'm like, oh my God, what do I do with my life? One of the things I was doing for Dykstra at the time was writing like brief reports on stocks. And it got me like reignited on the space. Um, when I uh, left, a couple of friends had been working at a trade desk at Camara Securities. And I uh, thought what they were doing looked interesting and gave me an opportunity to work in the market. And I started there the first week uh, Bear Stearns went under. And um, through the time there, I was given, you know, I think a little more latitude to kind of find my own way and find what worked for me in the markets. And I had great bosses who like kind of incentivized and encouraged thinking uh, that your personality is what drives how you could find success in the markets. And I started writing a lot and writing these letters to friends and family and telling them all the stocks that I thought were interesting, putting together, um, you know, thesis for various things, really just learning in public and trying to get myself uh, familiar and really finding my own way, not with true mentorship or guidance. Um, and you know, my partner, who who's now my partner at the time, was doing something parallel, uh, where he was running a small business consulting firm and was telling some of his clients that yeah, you have to get into the market in 2009. Um, and he created a business to just guide these people in. That's what they asked for. They said they they wanted to get find a way in, and he put them in the spiders. And I joined him and we had no specific strategy in mind in the beginning, but I was just developing this parallel uh, alongside, um, developing a strategy, learning what to do, um, and trying to build a track record all at the same time. And you know, I could get into some more details, but I think the question, uh, would I do it again knowing what I know now, I think is a really hard one to answer because I don't know if I could do it again knowing what I know now since it was all just one big series of accidents. 
one after another that led me to this path. And I'm incredibly grateful because I think it's the best job in the world and the most interesting. And I get to do something that's really, uh, you know, intellectually stimulating for me. And I don't feel like I'm working. And that's, you know, one of the luckiest things that anyone could ask for. Um, so I don't know if I could do it again because there were just so many like serendipitous and fortunate events along the way that helped make it happen. But it, you know, knowing what I know now, I'd absolutely try to, though I'd echo Phil, there were, you know, some really hard uh, moments along the way, some really uh, dark times where I thought, you know, there's no way we're actually going to make this a viable business. Uh, because it is not just about managing portfolios, it's about building a business as well. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll definitely address some of the why behind that in the questions that follow. Great. Um, well, I don't know where you guys want to, um, you know, go next, but uh, there's a question that relates to the podcast itself. So maybe we'll take that one. Um, the questioner says, I've always wondered why you guys do the podcast. Has it generated AUM slash opportunities slash new colleagues to talk to? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's an interesting one. So, you know, why do we do the podcast? Because Hey, John's awesome. John asked me if it's something I'd be interested in. I was so interested in podcasting generally. I've told you guys about having done a podcast way back in my law school days. And, you know, I thought uh, having blogged regularly for, you know, five years from 2008 to like uh, 2013, um, the process of doing a podcast each week forces you to think about something really interesting and pull together your thoughts. And that's incredibly valuable. Uh, if you're capable of explaining a concept, then you know it better than if you just think you know it. And I think that exercise is really valuable. I view it as a sort of uh, business card as well. Now, when I have conversations, I kind of tell people I have a podcast, they're able to go there. Um, and it's opened doors and created many conversations. I've got to know Phil uh, through this. And, you know, I think we have a lot in common and think about a lot of things alike. And that's been, you know, something truly special to me as well. So you never know where things will take you. And I've been one more keen on saying yes to a lot of things that might open doors and be interesting. So that's, that's mainly the why for me. How about you, Phil? Yeah, I would say it was a hundred percent the first part, which was, you know, John brought it up. And generally speaking, when John says jump, I ask how high, because I just like what he's built so much. And, and, like him personally and respect his judgment. So I think that was the overwhelming impetus at the beginning. And the more I thought about it, you know, it's, it's not a huge time commitment. It's, it's just enough to make it meaningful. The optionality is huge because you never know what's going to come from something like this. You know, I, I, like you said, Elliot, you and I didn't know each other that well before this, but I really enjoyed that part of it. I mean, I've learned a lot from talking with you and, and listening to you through this podcast, which has been awesome. That was definitely one of the things I hope to get out of it. And that is, has succeeded beyond my wildest imagination um, I, to to dispel one of the rumors. I mean, it definitely hasn't generated a nickel of AUM for me. I don't know about you, but that was not something I ever or anticipated. For me. <laughs> yeah, that was not something I ever anticipated anyway. Look, I mean, I've been running, um, you know, some version of a blog, a newsletter, and it's literally just a compilation of stuff that I read every month and I send it out every month or maybe nine times a year. And, you know, it's got several thousand people that have been reading it and we're now 12 years in 
And like, it's been awesome from a networking perspective and the number of people that like just once every like four years, if I haven't seen them or talked to them, they'll like reach out and say, hello, they'll recommend good stuff for me to read. So that was all the, you know, payback or reward I was ever looking for. I never looked at it as, as marketing or brand building or anything like that. I mean, I think it's got some attributes along those lines, but it's certainly not what I was looking for. And and to your other point, I totally agree about, you know, having to, you know, think through what you're going to say and talk about and be able to do it in a clear manner that actually conveys your thoughts to a, to a broader audience that you don't know. I mean, it's the same reason. It's really kind of a parallel thought to uh, why I started teaching that MBA class that I mentioned. Uh, we talked about that last week or the week before, you know, it's similar to John, a faculty member there, uh, came to me and it was somebody who I liked and respected and asked me to do it. And so that was really all it took, you know, at a high level was, was that was more than enough. And, you know, but what I've gotten out of it um, is like you said, I mean, just the the forced process of having to think hard about, okay, you've got basically 10 chances to convey what you think is important to this group of bright, but somewhat unexperienced 20 something students, you know, what are you going to do? And like just the sheer panic of having to stand up in front of them the first time. And it's really just sheer panic every week in that regard, right? Because I, I'm speaking only for myself here, but my personal preference is often to sit in a room with the door shut reading and just kind of doing my own thing. And I have about four people that I really like to talk to on an almost, you know, two people on an almost daily basis and maybe three or four on like a weekly or monthly basis. And that's about it. So doing something like this, doing something like that MBA class really forces me to kind of get out of my shell and expand my horizons. And I think that's all to the good. So that's kind of it for me. So I think we'll move on then. Or John, do you want to chime in on that one or no? No, no, go ahead. Uh, I think uh, just in terms of the format, you know, uh, we got so many questions that we're just going to try to address as many of, of them as we can. And uh, then we might have some uh, some general comments kind of uh, in there as well. But uh, we really just want to, uh, first of all, uh, make sure we answer the questions that came in uh, via Twitter. So do yep. you feel want to kind of take the next question? Sure, I'll take the next one. Yeah, we got this a couple of different ways, I think. And it was, how do you get comfort about the robustness of your research process, especially if you're competing with larger funds with more resources and more analysts? It's a great question. And uh, I think the obvious answer there is I try as hard as I can to not compete against funds um, that have that sort of advantage over me. So, you know, I remember, Elliot, speaking back to, you know, the, the financial crisis and whatnot. I mean, I, I did briefly spend some time uh, looking at Lehman claims after the bankruptcy. And, you know, we had an opinion and we had a position and we actually had a claim because they were a former prime broker of ours at my old fund. But um, I remember talking to some folks at Baupost and I found out within maybe a few weeks or a few months of the bankruptcy filing, um, they had a team of like six really smart people and their full-time job was looking at the Lehman bankruptcy. And so that's the kind of advantage I think that this question is referring to. And so I was very cognizant of that. And, you know, I think that's very true. I also served at the, um, on the creditors committee for a bankruptcy. Uh, it was an oil and gas producer that managed to file for bankruptcy in 2011. And uh, I remember, you know, going into that as the dumb money at the table and, and very quickly looking around and realizing that, you know, there are plenty of funds and plenty of smart people that are tied into the Houston oil and gas mafia. And that's all they do for a living. And, you know, you just can't compete in that world. So I just try to avoid it as much as I humanly can. And so the, you know, the big single advantage, maybe the only advantage I have is just that it's my own money. It's my own time horizon. I don't have to answer to anybody else. 
right? I mean, there are lots and lots of dumb things that happen every day in the world just because people are doing things for uneconomic reasons or psychological reasons. And, uh, you know, I just try to avoid as many of those mistakes as I possibly can. And so, um, yeah, I think the, the robustness of my research process at the same time, like when I really dig into something, I'll put my work up against anybody's, right? I mean, if you put me toe to toe with any analyst, I think I could hold my own and then some, but I do have to be very cognizant of the fact that I am often at a huge disadvantage and informational disadvantage. And I just try to avoid those fights as much as I can and go looking for fights where I haven't, you know, a long-term advantage. Yeah, that's a really good answer. I mean, I think about this one a lot. Uh, when I started, the answer is clearly naivety because I just wasn't there nearly enough, did a lot of learning in public. But in parallel to that, I was fully of the belief that my job alongside my job of actually like researching and managing portfolios was to actually get a little bit better every day. And I made a strong commitment to um, spend at least a portion of my day improving my skill set, improving my capabilities, uh, both in terms of the depth I was able to, to drive and to the uh, breadth I was able to cover. And, you know, that's something that I've continued to this day. As time has gone on, I've viewed my outsider approach to the industry. Uh, the fact that I wasn't steeped in the industry, I wasn't brought up in it, and I came here with my own unique perspective and incentives and drive. Um, I think those are huge advantages. I'm not a mercenary here because of what's, uh, you know, many people are attracted purely to um, what you can make in the business as opposed to the intellectual pursuit of it. I think that's a huge advantage. And obviously, you know, many people share that. Uh, so that's not unique in and of itself, but I think that's something really important because that drives our firm, uh, not just myself individually. Um, and, you know, I think a big advantage, uh, having come as an outsider is I've afforded myself a little opportunity to be creative in ways that I think are anathema within the kind of heart of the finance industry to think about ideas creatively, to broaden my timeline in ways that are different than other people can can just do, even when they're long-term. Um, and putting my own skin in the game behind it. Uh, I think that's something that's really important. And, you know, eating your own cooking is something that makes you different than some of the larger funds who are working predominantly for clients. So um, I've done what I thought was best for my own and, you know, my family and my partner and his family's money. And that was the only incentive uh, along the way to actually make things work. Um, in terms of like actual robustness of the process itself, I think, you know, it's to get better every step of the way. I both want to understand what the best people in the industry are doing um, and keep moving my own process in ways that I think are kind of differentiated and unique. Um, and, you know, I don't think I was comfortable. Uh, I, I hope to never be totally comfortable and to think that I have something to get better at. Uh, every step of the way. Um, I think that that little bit of unease is a powerful driving force and it keeps you hum humble along the way. Um, but I do think there's a degree to which like the robustness of some of these large firms is more a uh, an illusion than an actuality. And like a lot can be done with, I don't know, 80, you could go do 80% of the work with 20% of the resources uh, very easily. And I don't know how much of a difference that extra 20% of uh, robustness might make in certain cases. In some cases, it's absolutely the difference between being able to play and not, though. So um, that's, how, that's how I think about that. I'll just uh, add uh, to that uh, real quickly that Mark Walker 
out of London had a really good presentation on kind of the advantages of a of an emerging manager over the larger institutional investors. Uh, there's a lot of institutional constraints that those investors have that an emerging manager doesn't necessarily have. And knowing what those are and then exploiting them can be tremendous. So I would just uh, recommend, I think um, folks can Google uh, that presentation or we're gonna certainly include it uh, in the show notes. I'd second that, that was awesome. Elliot, do you want to move on to the next uh, question? Sure. Yeah. The next one is what product service or service should you have incorporated into your business sooner, whether operational or research? And I think the answer for me is really simple. I think it's Tegas. I've called it the most indispensable resource that I have. I gave up my Bloomberg terminal to be able to fit that in the budget at the time. Um, I think it really echoes the areas that I think are truly important in my analysis, like you know, you don't need a Bloomberg to be able to build a model and to understand which KPIs are important, but you do need to have a great level of actual contact with people who are formerly employed at a business or customers of certain, especially ones where I don't know, like the decision-making process of a customer. Um, it's absolutely the difference between being able to get involved in something and not in many cases for me. Um, and it's also made me uh, smarter just by seeing the kinds of questions people are asking in given cases. And I've definitely improved as an interviewer and asking my own questions, having read calls from a lot of other people. Um, so that, that would be my one biggest shout, shout out uh, on the research side. How about you, Phil? Yeah, I don't think I have one. I mean, I've used all of them. I, you know, So when I first started, we used some of the old expert networks like GLG and Vista and Whatnot, and I actually didn't like those very much. And I've used FactSet and Bloomberg over the years. I have both on my screen right now. I think they can do amazingly powerful things. They also are a double-edged sword a little bit. Uh, you know, I echo your sentiments. I, I've tried Tegas. I think it's great. Um, you know, I, I, we're going to get down later. I think to talking about uh, Twitter, so we we can talk about crowdsourcing ideas and message boards like Value Investors Club. I think they all have their place. I mean, I, I've tried to make sure I understand the capabilities and the drawbacks from every one of those. But I, I don't really have anything um, that I would say that I, I wish I had done differently from the very beginning. And so I, I guess this is a good place for me to give a quick plug for what I think is is the most important thing you can do in this regard. So you talked about a, a service incorporating into the business sooner, which I think brings up the point about like structuring and service providers, which I don't think there's another question that that asked this exactly the same way. So I'll just give, you know, a quick 30, 40 seconds on what I think really matters because like the great Howard Marks book, everything in this regard is the most important thing. So I think the structure really matters, right? Getting the fees, liquidity, the domicile all really matter. I spent literally a year thinking about all that kind of stuff. Uh, getting the right kind of capital matters and getting truly aligned partners that are going to make, you know, one plus one equal at least two or more than two. Because as we've all seen, and I'll talk a little bit more about this maybe later, is that a bad LP is going to outpunch a good LP in a fight. And, and that does happen even to the best of us from, from time to time. So just avoiding bad LPs, I think, is enormously important. Um, marketing really does matter. So you know, I think you could make an argument that I should have gone uh, some different directions in, in terms of a marketing service or something like that early on. I think those come with enormous drawbacks too. So it's not something I would necessarily do differently, but I understand the argument in that regard. And then service providers. So, I mean, in terms of a product or service that 
I would recommend to everybody. It's that, you know, don't cut corners in the wrong places on operating, operating partners and service providers. So I was lucky enough, like I said, to launch with my prior firm's back office, you know, kind of showing me the path the whole way. And then before we actually separated the management company, after we launched Outside Capital at the beginning of 2014, before we launched the management company and separated the management company, uh, I was lucky to to find my partner, Kristen Hartman, who's the COO and CFO who, you know, could do this in her sleep for a $10 billion fund. So it was just an enormous resource and, and probably the only thing that's just been an unmitigated total home run with absolutely no drawbacks or stumbling blocks or anything like that. It's just been completely awesome on that side. But like the service provider thing is not gone perfectly, right? Like the administrator is the most important relationship you're going to have. I did literally almost a year of homework and had to fire the administrator in October of our first year because they got the monthly NAV wrong eight of the first nine times. It was just a complete fiasco. It was stunning how incompetent they were. And they were picked because they were good at administering bank debt funds, which are actually very hard. And my fund is the opposite of that. It couldn't be much easier. And they still got it wrong eight of the nine times. Uh, Prime Brokerage, you know, look, we were at Goldman for for quite a while, the first few years, and they kicked us out because we were too small and we don't leverage and we don't short and we don't do all the things that are interesting. Uh, you know, in my opinion, Interactive does an okay job. We use Schwab as well. They're fine. Uh, the rest of the industry is is still there, but it's tough, right? I think the prime broker does matter and you have to care about who clears in custody your tra- custodies, your trades. Um, on September 1 of 2008, going into a year that would, you know, change financial history where we actually ended the year almost flat on a performance basis, uh, we were only down 2% because Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns were our two prime brokers at the beginning of that year. And thank goodness our CFO at the time scrambled out of both of them. So when Lehman filed, we only lost 2% of our of our assets to that, uh, you know, frozen in the bankruptcy. So it really does matter. The audit, you know, we had Rothstein at the beginning, they did a pretty great job. And then they were acquired by a big four auditor who was not only uh, frankly, just totally incompetent, but was completely disingenuous and would sign an engagement letter with us, not once, but twice, and then come back to us halfway through the work and say, we need an extra $5,000. We need an extra $10,000. It's just a total nightmare. Um, we've switched to Spicer since then and been quite happy. And so the audit, you know, I think most people would be shocked as to how it actually goes and how not uh, meaningful or robust some of the processes can be compared to the perception that's out there, but it does matter and you do need a good auditor. So I would spend a lot of time there. Legal, you need you need good docs, right? That's just the bottom line. So, you know, whether you go to one of the big white shoe Wall Street law firms and pay $50,000 or whether you can do it a different way, because in a lot of ways, the, the documents can be somewhat boilerplate at some point, but they really do matter. Um, so it's important to read every line and understand everything that goes into them. And then likewise, compliance. Um, you know, we used Seward and Kissel for the original docs. We used Constellation to set up the compliance program. And uh, that, that part of it's been great. So, you know, I, I don't think those are probably the products and service that the questioner was asking about, because I think he was probably thinking more about uh, research kind of stuff. But I just wanted to give that shout out as to the service provider landscape, because it's a question I get all the time and it actually didn't come up. Uh, elsewhere. And I think it's just enormously important. Yeah. Well, he did say operational. So it's good you hit that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you want to keep true. going? Uh, no, no, no. I guess that's true. He did say operational or research. So yeah, I, I just, and we can circle back. And if people want to ping me uh, on email or Twitter, I'm happy to, to chime in more. I mean, I literally get this question five or six times a year at least. So uh, the next question. Hey, the, I, I'd add a couple other things to that first, because I want to echo sure, yeah, what you ahead. said. I, I didn't talk enough about the operational, but we should hit that. Um, you know, 
I uh, have my, I'm so lucky that my partner handles all the operations, compliance, the liaising with outside partners. I think that's huge when you get started. It's really helpful to have a partner who's both supportive uh, in some of the challenging uh, parts, like psychologically, and who's able to take the burden and kind of free you up to focus on the investing side of things. Uh, I know that's not necessarily possible for everyone. Um, but we started running the business with uh, SMAs. Um, and, you know, maybe in the next question, I'd hit this a little more, but um, grew up in the town that Madoff preyed on. And, you know, we were starting in the wake of the financial crisis. People wanted transparency and control in order to be our clients to start. Um, so we used uh, TD Ameritrade. Uh, we still use TD to this day. I think they're, you know, obviously going to be part of Schwab and remains to be seen exactly what it looks like and whether we'll have to repaper things. But I think their service has been by and large, pretty damn good. They help you a lot. Um, and we just migrated. Uh, so we have a hedge fund as well that was started several years later. Um, I'd echo everything Phil said about like trying to find good service providers and vendors. We have a really good admin in Opus. Um, I, in the beginning, felt it was important to use like a bigger law firm and that really backfired. I thought it was a pretty terrible relationship. We arranged to have like a flat fee uh, to start. And when it was done, we get sent this itemized bill of every hour that was done. That's like three X what we had arranged in our flat fee and had contracted with them. And, you know, it was like, uh, we had to dispute it. And then it took a lot of time and a lot of effort to get them to acknowledge their own agreement and say like, okay, actually yeah, big mistake on our part. And it took a lot of, a lot of stress and a lot of pressure. I think there's some great boutique uh, smaller lawyers who are very attentive to detail and work very closely with emerging managers and can do quite a bit. So if you'd want a rec re referral on, on that end, uh, I'd be open to answering uh, and helping it all. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, we've actually used for, for the occasional stuff we've needed a group of three women that, that spun out of Sidley and uh, they've kind of been doing their own thing without the overhead and the egregious billing rate. So it's a great way to do it. And uh Likewise, I should have named by name, uh, you know, criticized by category and praised by name Alps. So we we switched from that disaster of an administrator to Alps, which is now part of SSNC. They seem to have retained most of their autonomy in that regard, and they've done a pretty good job for us over the years. We've been we've been pretty happy. The the, the accuracy has been good. The timeliness has been good. The service has been pretty good. The fees are pretty reasonable. So I would I would recommend Alps in that regard. Um, so thanks, Elliot, for chiming in. That that's that was really helpful. The next one on the list is what is your what was your time, what was your runway or timeline to build a profitable business? This is a huge one. I, I think it just varies incredibly by everybody's individual circumstances. So I said, under no circumstances am I going to look at it less than five years as a you know meaningful referendum on what's working and what's not working. So I don't think you can look at this and say, I'm going to give myself 12 months or 24 months of working capital or something like that's just not going to work. But I don't think five months is necessarily the right number either. So I think everybody's just going to kind of have to come up with their own. What about you guys? Yeah, that's a tough question because it depends how you think about it. We bootstrapped the business from the beginning and we ran it very lean, understanding you could get a lot done with some pretty inexpensive resources. We did a lot on our own. Uh, early on as well. And so, you know, we were profitable fairly quickly, but in terms of opportunity cost, you know, what we could have done elsewhere, you know, it was definitely expensive. 
Um, so it depends how you want to think about it. Um, and, you know, every step of the way, I think we've decided to invest in the business ahead of actually harvesting from the business, understanding that there were resources we wanted and there were uh, things we wanted to do to make ourselves better. Um, so I still think we're very much in, in investment mode, though it is profitable in the traditional sense. How, how do you guys think about that? Well, I would just say that I have always favored um, cutting costs to the bone in the beginning. Um, you know, there's this misconception out there that you need to spend to impress. And I think that's a really bad attitude to have. Um, rather, you know, if you just start in the minimum way possible, you give yourself a chance to be sustainable much earlier. And as you grow, you can kind of add the bells and whistles. I think that's a much more organic way. Now, if you're coming out of a big shop and you're going to raise uh, over a hundred million off the bat, then you can afford to put in place uh, some of those things immediately. But I don't think people really need to spend um, as much money as is generally believed. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think it's just a matter of both philosophy and an ill-defined base rate because I tend to like businesses that are bootstrapped and can survive really difficult circumstances on a very lean budget. And so that's certainly how I did it. I do know uh, several people closely who've done it the other way, including my former firm where, you know, they they were spending pretty aggressively pretty early on and, you know, definitely followed the build it and they will come kind of mentality. And that, that can work too. I don't know that that would really come with a higher set of odds. Um, you know, again, it would depend on your circumstances, like you said, John. So, um, you know, if you're going to spend what, what is your real runway there? I mean, you really do have to be careful about that, that kind of stuff. So my, my personal preference has certainly been to keep it as lean as humanly possible and, and move forward that way. Yeah, John, I'm glad you used the word sustainable there because I think there's another side of that too. Like we wanted to have a pretty fragmented customer base in the beginning and get to scale with like a diverse group of people so that no one person could put us out of business too. So that's the other side of building a sustainable business, right? You don't want to have like revenue concentration. Um, so I, I, I'd kind of tie that into um, runway slash timeline to build a profitable business because if you have a profitable business, but you only have one customer, you have a very different kind of risk. Um, so that was something that that was really important. We wanted to have a really robust foundation before we even tried to pursue like, and you know, only just now uh, starting that uh, true institutional investment. Okay, next question on uh, biggest mistake or best decision in the early years. Yeah, I'll jump at that. The biggest mistake that we made in the early years was, you know, going back to having started in a town that made off parade, we geared our mandate uh, in the core SMA strategy toward what made investors comfortable on position sizing. So we were, I'd say, based on where and how I want to invest, we were um, overly diverse and didn't afford ourselves enough opportunity to concentrate in our best ideas. And obviously over the course of time, our best ideas outperformed our like average idea. And so that was a pretty big drag. And it's something that I'd been frustrated about, but it's hard to change a mandate on like the people who effectively 
put you in business. So, you know, we've kind of proven ourselves and have been trying to like move more that way. The best decision uh, that we made was like, you know, when we started, we were doing a little more for some, we, we took some uh, customers where we would do like wealth management and planning. And we decided, you know, it was a couple years into this, no more of that, uh, getting out of that entirely, just focusing on equities and managing our strategy and being very simple and having, you know, ev- everything geared around just our essence. And, you know, uh, relatedly, uh, what we did was as we were potentially, and this this will get uh, to part of my answer and uh, some later questions on how to build a client roster and, and market um, to people who we felt would be really great clients, like some high net worth families. We told them, start small with us. Uh, for people who would write pretty large checks, we're like, just give us 50000 to manage. It'll be in an account where you could see every single position you could talk to us, like call my phone at any time. I'll answer. I'll tell you exactly why we're doing what we're doing. Get comfortable with us and give us a chance. Uh, because once people have skin in the game, they think about you a little differently and you're really in a position to build trust. And I think it was the best decision we made because those are the people who became like, interestingly, after our first rough spell uh, and, and where when we came out of it, I think with our heads on our shoulders and having done great work during that, um, that's when, you know, one of the 50,000 investments became a $10 million investment and it kind of made us a, sta- a sustainable business at once in that sense. And, you know, I think had we not been willing, uh, to take a small check, I don't know if we've ever, we'd have ever had that client in the door in that way. Um, and I think too many people go for everything as opposed to just a really little bit and play the, you know, a lot of investors talk about looking for businesses that are capable of doing lend and expand, but no investors think about uh, you know doing land and expand for their own business, and I think it's a great strategy. Yeah, that's a good point. I one of the mistakes I made was not being smart enough to really pursue managed accounts early on. We do have them now. I think it, it makes sense for all the reasons you just put forth, Elliot. So I totally agree with that. I wasn't dogmatic about it. It just wasn't something I pursued enough, and this ties into the next question as well about attracting new investors. But, you know, I, so in terms of biggest mistake early on, I don't think I screwed anything up operationally or structurally. Uh, there's certainly nothing that I would do over again. That was like a foreseeable blunder where I just smack my head and feel like an idiot. So that's good. I mean, on the investment side, as I look back, um, I, I also haven't committed a lot or really any mistakes that have been truly, truly painful. So that's good. I mean, I'm always trying to manage risk in that regard and that I'm just you I'm almost always unwilling to participate if I think the risks are are really material and that you know I could lose let's say more than 1 or 2% of capital if I prove wrong and look I I've, I've definitely been wrong many times over the last 7 or 8 years so that's not it but I I've been able to mitigate the risk such that I haven't lost very much when I've been wrong so that's been key but where I have been wrong in a really painful way that doesn't show up in those numbers is I just have, I wasn't aggressive enough early enough in uh, maybe acting when I, you know, the odds were kind of marginal and I, I could have sized things a little differently. Um, so th- those were kind of gun shy is the wrong word, but you know, I, I could have been, you know, more cognizant of some upside risk that I was missing. Right. And so I, you know, that's kind of a, a cop out answer because I think it was referring more to, decisions in the business itself, but but that's really what I would point to. In terms of the best 
um, decisions early on. I mean, that, that was a no brainer. I mean, hi, hiring Kristen and having her build the business and, and run the business and the accounting and the back office and the compliance and the operations was easily the best decision I've made. And, and it's been just awesome and a total home run. So that going back though, to the marketing stuff that does tie into the next one, which was the best way to attract new investors. And again, this is an area where I'm very self-critical and I sit up nights wondering what I've done wrong. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny. So I, I, I'm kind of a simpleton in this regard. I, I try to attract new investors who are just simply like-minded, who want what I'm offering. And that is simply a partnership where I'm making the decisions and I would be perfectly happy if our roles were reversed. So if I were a limited partner instead of the managing partner, I, I would be perfectly pleased with what's going on. If I had like total clairvoyance into what was coming and I, I was still comfortable with it, or if I had like you know, a, a live stream of what the person was doing every day and every decision that he or she was making. And I were still totally comfortable with it. That's what I'm trying to do. And so that's been basically my way of trying to attract new investors is to communicate and, and more importantly, to demonstrate that attitude of partnership. And I would say that that's probably naive in a lot of ways. It's probably oversimplified in a lot of ways. I don't think it's all that effective in terms of getting big quickly or even getting to scale quickly. So um, you know, this is something I've been talking about with a few people I I trust and respect. I used to be a lot more cynical about having a quote unquote marketing angle. Um, so I don't know if this is later. It is a little bit later on the list. I think it's, you know, somebody asked how important it is to have an easy to understand label such as the Dundo investor Monish Barais used or or something like that to explain the strategy. And I do think that's actually critical. And that's something that I did not do early on and failed to do and and still don't articulate well, I think in a lot of ways. So I do think you have to have an angle. You have to have something that people, when they're thinking in very simple terms, when they're trying to explain it to their spouse or whatever, they can kind of say, this is what it is. And they hang their hat on that. I think that is absolutely crucial. So I think, you know, look, it, it's, it, it's certainly necessary in my opinion to act as a true partner, but I think it's somewhat insufficient in some ways, because I do think you need that kind of marketability aspect and angle, something unique that that makes you explainable to everybody else because it's very easy to glaze people's eyes over as you start explaining what you're doing. What do you think, Elliot? Yeah, I think that's great. And I'd add the way I'd approach this. So, you know, land and expand is not a way to attract new investors. That's once you've already attracted them. So to attract new investors, what I'd say is in general, be interested. So you know, when you talk to people, ask questions, listen, just be interested, be honest. Like, you know, people might, once they hear you work in markets, ask you your opinion on things. Don't try to be like the person that knows everything. Uh, you know, just be honest about what you do and don't know and uh, be honest about everything you, everything, literally. Uh, be humble. Like, don't uh, oversell yourself. Don't, I, I think the best sale is one where you don't actually sell. Um, and you just kind of talk. And I think writing, writing is one of the most important things. First, you know, the process of writing helps you clarify your own thoughts. And then second, once you get something out there, you never know what life it takes on its own on the internet. Uh, it could be as simple as one client sends one thing to a friend. Um, and from there, you have a new relationship that comes in. But beyond that, if you write and do it regularly, uh, whether it's, you know, quarterly or, you know, if you want to make it semi-annual, whatever is appropriate for you. Um, the very nature of writing over time gives a permanent resource that people could look back on when they first encounter you. And it becomes truly the way people get to 
know you after they hear your name. So um, I think it's incredibly important. It literally opens doors and it keeps people coming back for more. So, you know, I, I couldn't emphasize enough how important it is to write. And at times I think I don't do nearly enough of it, but um, you know, maybe, maybe I should start doing more of that uh, from here. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I should chime in on that to clarify. So I think writing is hugely important. I'm obviously a big fan of it. It clarifies your own thought process. It's crucial to have your principles out there so people know what you believe and why you behave the way you're behaving and to be able to judge you based on the right yardsticks. And so I was very careful to lay all that stuff out at the very beginning. And I started out writing pretty conventional letters you know, every quarter. And I pretty quickly realized like every 90 days, like there was just almost no portfolio turnover and very little overall portfolio activity. So I just kind of realized that was the wrong cadence. We went to twice a year and that worked okay. But there again, like I, I kind of realized after 2019, when I did the analysis, we only made buy and sell decisions on like 32 individual trading days that year. And even the mid-year update was just kind of a repeat of what I'd written about in the first you know, part of the year in January. So I went to once a year because that really reflects more of the cadence of what we're actually doing. And I think that's important to kind of marry the two up. But I also said, I promised to write to you as, as frequently as needed. And sure enough, as soon as I made that switch, it was right before the pandemic. And so I made that switch in January of 2020 and immediately had to write an update in March and in April just to keep people, you know, appraised of what was going on because those were obviously such chaotic and extreme times. Um, so I, I, that's that's worked well for me. I think it's the right decision for me. I don't know that it really applies to everybody. I think everybody needs to frame up their own uh, situation uniquely. And one other thing we've done that's been good is we I try to have um, for limited partners where I know them personally, which is almost all of them, and where it's feasible, which again is almost all of them, not literally all of them. You know, I try to have lunch or dinner once a year with them, and I do an annual meeting once a year to just you know gather their thoughts, you know, keep them appraised of what's going on, be able to have their questions entertained in a casual, non-threatening kind of non-public venue, I think is really important. So I think those are, are good ways to do it too. I'll just chime in on, on attracting new investors. I think it also depends on the type of investor you're going after. I think, you know, Elliot, what you said um, applies to a let's say decision makers, you know, that can be high net worth individuals, heads of a small family office and such that can basically pull the trigger uh, pretty quickly. I think there's also um, the larger institutions or endowments where um, there is definitely somewhat of a game uh, that goes on uh, or, a, or a dance, maybe better word, between uh, the emerging manager and that institution where they're looking at tons of emerging managers and uh, they're only going to invest with very few. So, you know, how do you kind of um, do that dance so that you end up actually getting their capital? It's certainly not easy. Um, and I've come to believe that you have to not give them everything right away. You know, you have to maintain a certain distance and mystique um, and not come across as desperate for their capital. Um, so, you know, just being an open book is probably not going to work entirely to in your favor. 
you know, maybe in the very last stages of a due diligence process, after they've basically made a commitment and they're just doing some final uh, due diligence, obviously uh, you're going to have to be an open book. But I think in the early stage, you don't want to do that. Uh, there's also a lot of um, kind of investors or allocators that are pretending to be interested in investing with you, but actually they just want your best ideas. And so I've seen cases where, you know, people just want to get on someone's distribution list for free ideas uh, without any intention of ever becoming uh, an LP, or um, they may even make a very small investment uh, just to be in on that idea flow, to be able to pick up the phone and actually spend a lot of time on the phone with you, uh, getting all the intelligence on your best idea, and then they're going to go and uh, do that 10 times in size uh, with their own money without paying you a fee. So I've, I've seen a lot of things where uh, emerging managers get taken advantage of because uh, a lot of them uh, are just uh, in need of, of capital. So I would just say, you know, be really cognizant of who you're dealing with and adjust your approach uh, based on that. Yeah, that's a good point, John. I, I, is a mistake that I made in the early years. And another good candidate would be the literally hundreds of hours I wasted doing this dance, which you just described. So I think that's the right way to put it. I've likened it with other people to almost like dating, right? Like going to the bar and playing that sort of game, because that's really what it boils down to in a lot of cases, unfortunately. And I've just kind of gotten away from the whole thing because it was so frustrating. I mean, I, I can think of some very specific examples where uh, one of the major endowments reached out to me. We had an initial conversation. I flew to see them. I flew to see them again. I flew to see them a third time at the head of the endowment. On the fourth time there, you know, it was like, we're not going to invest. And if you'd like some feedback, we can tell you why. And my first thought was like, well, this could have been a phone call rather than a trip. The second thought was like, yeah, sure. Give me, give me the feedback. And the feedback was, you know, we don't invest with funds that have a seed deal. And I was like looking around like, what, what did I miss? Because we've gone through this three times, five times. I don't know what it was at that point. I'm like, oh, well, good, because I don't, I don't have a seed deal. I was just you know, getting operational support for free from my old firm. They didn't have a stake in the management company. Well, we also don't like you know, anybody who shorts things. I'm like, well, I used to short things at my old firm. I'm not shorting anything. I mean, you know, no plans to be a big short seller. No plans to do it at all. Okay, well, we don't think you're quite concentrated enough. And I was like, well, I have eight to 12 positions. I don't know how much more concentrated you really want. Like, you know, right currently, we have half our capital in three, um, and that, that's kind of been exactly the portfolio construction in the last seven years. So, if that's not concentrated, and these were all questions, by the way, that were addressed at every step of the way over the prior three in-person visits on their turf, and over the phone, and in writing, like they had everything I'd ever written, like going back to kindergarten, and it was just extremely frustrating that that's how the process laid out. Likewise, two of the other major endowments reached out to me and asked for everything, right? And so I spend, you know, several hours like preparing everything they would possibly want. I send it off to them and then they just completely disappear. Absolutely no follow-up. When I ask for a follow-up, they don't even respond to that sometimes. Like, and, and you know, that it's not unique to me. It's not a knock on them. I'm certainly not going to name them. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's a, it is a strange thing. You know, maybe I did some things wrong, but I don't really care because I was trying to be transparent and I wasn't, I don't know. So I, I would just caution everybody along the lines that John just mentioned that it's very easy to get your time wasted in that game. 
And I'd echo the open book thing as someone who is an open book. And it's really hard to go back on that once you've started that way. But um, I know a friend who says, uh, you know, it, it's uh, important to be mysterious, uh, you know, along the lines of what John said about the mystique. Um, I think that creates a certain allure and, you know, that question that Phil referenced about labels like Dondo, I think being able to distill things in one very clear marketable way helps build uh, allure in that sense. Um, and those are things I don't exactly uh, have, I'd say, neatly put together. Um, so, yeah, a, really good points. Definitely have had my time wasted, uh, though I try to be optimistic and look at the silver linings where I've learned a lot and I've had to force myself to think about things I had otherwise not considered beforehand about myself, about my process, about my communication and my ability to uh, tell my story my way in a way that's reflective of the realities. Um, and I think the more, uh, the in, in some contexts, being more open had actually been helpful, but being entirely an open book is, is not necessarily helpful. Leave room for dribbles. And, you know, it's also a context sport. So like, don't wait for people to follow up with you, follow up with them, but they very well might ghost you. So you never know what you're going to get. Um, but it's, it's, it's challenging. Um, and so maybe along those lines, I'll, I'll, I'll pull up the next question. So what were your biggest challenges? What are you most proud of? Uh, you know, biggest challenges I think are how hard it is to manage other people's money when, you know, especially there's times where like, the market's just not kind. The beginning of COVID, the crash in particular, you know, we had a client whose primary business was, uh, let's not say specifically what it was, but it was one of the businesses shut down because of COVID. So their personal life, you know, it was a very resilient long-term business that they'd never had challenges with. Suddenly, you know, the livelihood gets impaired. They see their portfolio going down and they call every day saying, hey, should we be selling everything? I'm really nervous. I can't sleep at night. What should we do? Um, I find those things to be incredibly challenging, both on a human level, because I feel terrible for people who I've got a relationship with and have come to care about, uh, but also because you know it weighs on your ability to when you want to be deeply focused on researching the widest opportunity set you've seen in a long time, you know, you don't want to have to think about those things, but you have to, and there's no choice, right? Um, so I, I, I find that to be uh, one of the bigger challenges. Alongside that, another really big challenge was when, um, you know, I'd publicly been uh, associated with Grubhub as an investment, and they had that uh, you know, November 2019 letter that kind of sent the stock way down. Um, stuff like that make you question your uh, ego in ways that are not necessarily helpful at all. Um, what I'm most proud of is actually being public about these things, facing the music and the heat when it actually arises, um, and while making sure that, you know, I do it in a way that helps and advances my work. It makes me more aware and more uh, cognizant of the true um, nature of the risk reward in my positions. I think that's been incredibly helpful. Most proud of the amount of people who I've uh, met who 
who have become true friends through doing work, through sharing, through uh, being public and being transparent, humble, honest, all those things. I think, uh, you know, I feel really, really good about that at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, I'm proud to have helped people and been helped by people along the way. And I want to give thanks, uh, you know, as much as possible. And, you know, I mean, going back to why we're doing this podcast, that's part, like, I really want to share some of the challenges and the lessons learned along the way with everyone else out there, because I didn't really have much resource uh, support or mentorship until very recently. And, um, you know, I think uh, it would have been helpful. And I'd hope if someone else out there is listening, you know, I'd be happy to help in, in that same sort of way. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll start with what I'm most proud of. That's that's an easy one, and that's that I've done my absolute level best and poured my heart and soul into it, and I look back on it with absolutely no regrets. So that's a great feeling, despite all the other, you know, frustrations. This is a hard job. It's ridiculously hard to put up good investment returns over time. We all know that, so I won't dwell on the investment side because I think that just goes without saying. But yeah, I'm enormously proud that I can look back and say. You know, I never cut corners. I never sacrificed my integrity. I never worry about something coming out where I did something under the cover of darkness and somebody will find out about it eventually because I just never got anywhere near that kind of stuff. And, you know, that's a good feeling and it may not get you all that far in the short run, but it's certainly how I want to operate. So I feel good about the returns we have posted for people. I feel good about the risks we've taken and the performance we have generated. So that, that's an easy one. That And that's why I keep doing it. And that's what I love about it. So in terms of the biggest challenges, I actually made a laundry list. I mean, there's just some great ones. And I, these are kind of more war stories. So hopefully it makes everybody else feel better. So before I ever actually launched and opened Outside Capital, I'd been talking to an anchor institutional investor who was great. They did everything kind of the right way. The questions were intelligent. The structure they had proposed was fine. Like everything was lined up perfectly and they invested within the first year of us opening to outside capital. And then within about seven or eight months of their initial investment. And by the way, before this, they claim, and I believe it's true that they had never actually redeemed from a manager within like five years and never for performance reasons and that kind of stuff. So uh, this was not necessarily on my radar screen of near-term worries, but um, they had a liquidity crisis on their end. And so like eight months into our relationship as an LP, they they had to redeem from me. So that was a pretty crushing blow uh, right away. And then shortly thereafter, uh, this would have been uh, the first summer, or I guess the second summer uh, after I'd opened Outside Capital. Uh, one of my biggest positions kind of opened up on a really negative news story that didn't really have a whole lot to do with it. And the stock went down about 20, 25% that morning. And um, Julian Robertson actually got on TV and talked about how he was shorted. <laughs> so that was a, you know, that was like my first uh, baptism by fire. Cause we'll talk to this about what it's like to manage other people's money. But that first punch to the gut, like you get when you're working for somebody else is like, Oh my God, I'm going to, I screwed this up. I'm going to get fired. I'm not going to get a bonus, whatever the case may be. Right. The first time it happens to you when you're managing other people's money is about a thousand times worse. Like there's just no worse feeling it completely ruined. So I, 4th of July is like one of my favorite holidays. We always take like a four day trip, five day trip with the family. Uh, it completely ruined that trip for me. Like I was just a wreck the whole time. I was so upset and and just wanted to puke the whole time. And thankfully that's one of the things that once you experience it once, you either want to go hide in the corner forever, or you get over it and move on. And thankfully, thankfully it was the latter for me, but until that happens, you'll, you'll never 
kind of know how it feels. Uh, you know, and on the, we've had just so many close calls that were real challenges in terms of taking that next step and gaining a lot more scale. Uh, you know, one of my earliest investors was a guy I really liked. He was a small business owner, salt of the earth entrepreneur. Uh, he had businesses that were worth a couple different businesses that were worth collectively at least 20 or $30 million. And, uh, he was planning to sell them both and uh, had a kind of toehold investment with me and was planning to allocate a, a big chunk of it upon the monetization event. And one morning he got up and went downstairs to get on his exercise bike and had a heart attack and dropped dead, which was horrifying because then I found out that he didn't have a will or an estate. And I had to spend the next year like helping his poor widow to unwind all this kind of stuff. It was it was heartbreaking. And it, you know, it brought in some, you know, real human element into why we're doing this. Yeah, you know, we had another giant investment get killed at the 11th hour because it was a pension plan who found out we at the time had an investment in the airlines and that didn't meet their carbon footprint goals, which again, would have been helpful to know at hour four instead of hour, you know, 140 in the process. That was, that was a pretty big problem and challenge. We had a, another big, um, investment that, that died, you know, somewhere fairly advanced because the two guys leading it left the firm to start their own venture and the new people just decided not to move forward uh, for kind of unrelated reasons. That was a huge gut punch and a challenge. We had a, a deal to actually kind of take over and, and merge with another firm. And uh, it would have been a very big uh, transaction to win. It was somebody I really admired and liked personally. And the whole thing kind of fell apart uh, for personal release, personal reasons on that side in the COVID crisis last year, right? As the... Uh, pandemic hit. It was literally, it, it happened to be my birthday. I spent 17, 18 hours on the phone that day with lawyers trying to get it all worked out and it, it all died. It was a total disaster and a total failure. It was a pretty big challenge, but um, you know, those things happen, right? I mean, that's, that's just life. It's, it's never going to be a straight line. It's never going to be easy. Anybody who thinks investing is easy is either lying or a moron. And anyone who says running any sort of business is easy is also either lying or a moron. So that, that's just kind of how it goes, right? But I think the the fact that you can overcome those challenges and and survive, and that's another thing I'm just enormously proud of is just the ability to just keep going and just try to grind it out and survive, right? Amen. It's hard. I think not enough people talk about that, but it is exactly. really hard. Yeah. Um, so moving on, what was the goal at the start of the journey? How did that affect the decisions you made, change the original goal? My goal was just to do this. I didn't really have a goal. I just wanted to do it. I wanted to make the decisions. I wanted to be the one, you know, bearing the blame and, and reaping the reward. So that was really it. Um, I don't know how that affected the decisions explicitly because I think that was kind of hardwired into me and the reasons for doing it. So I don't think it had an explicit explicit effect on the decisions I made. And there definitely hasn't been a change to the original goal, right? I mean, if anything, I'm just more aware of how difficult it is. So um, I don't think there's been a huge change in the goal. What about you guys? Yeah, I had two goals. One was to get great returns. I think a lot of people doing this inherently are trying for that. But the other was to get better every single day. And that was because I had this chip on my shoulder as an outsider. And, uh, you know, I truly felt the appeal of the intellectual pursuit here. And I think that if you ever approach that from the perspective of, I know the answers, you're uh, ready to hang up your uh, shoes. So, you know, I've made a pretty overt attempt to make sure I'm improving in some direction every step of the way. I have not changed my goal. I must confess, I give it slightly less time today than I did in the very beginning because 
when I started, I didn't have kids. I didn't have as big a business. So there's a little more time I have to give to those two things, but I still am a hundred percent committed to it. And, you know, I think one of the most important things I do to stay grounded is recognize that I was, uh, as I reflect on myself five years ago, I think, uh, you know, in a nice way, uh, very lowly of my five year ago self. And I think, uh, you know, I expect to do the same five years forward uh, from now about myself today. Um, so if I lose track of that, I think it's time for me to give up too. But um, that's very much, you know, like my goal, if if you want to call it any one thing. Yeah. And I, I should have mentioned about it. You raised a good point. Like, obviously, the investment returns is a goal, an explicit goal. And without that, you know, there's no real reason to be here. But one thing I guess I have changed was, I think I was just totally unrealistic about you know, periods of market underperformance you can suffer, right? So, you know, everybody can love to talk about Bill Miller and beating the S&P 500 for 15 years. But what if, and look, I think he's actually an enormously inspirational uh, figure in, in terms of how he's been able to continuously learn and reinvent himself. And if he had started managing, say, in 2008, you know, he wouldn't be any less brilliant than he is, but his track record would look horrible compared to what it was for the 15 years that he beat the S&P 500, right? So, uh, you know, Seth Klarman and Baupost underperformed for years, you know, in the late 90s, you know, Charlie Munger's track record was a mess in the 70s. Even Buffett's had a, you know, a rough stretch. Everybody's going to have a rough stretch. So I think I was way too optimistic or unrealistic in my early self-evaluation of what the track record could and should look like. And so that, I guess that is a way that, that my goals have, have changed a little bit over time. I would, you know, maybe riff off that a little and say, if I could reflect back and think a little differently about things, um, people who start as emerging managers are almost by definition young in the industry. And it's hard when you're young to realize how quickly long periods of time go. And I should have been more conscious, and I only started doing this later, of building more files on more things that have more life span to them. And I should have had explicit goals on kind of like mapping a broader network uh, of whether it be like people across industries or, um, you know, kind of histories of situations sooner. Um, and so, you know, I just throw that out there as one thing as I reflect back what I what I'd wish I set out upon as an explicit goal earlier, because those things have paid immense dividends from the moment I started doing it. Uh, it should have been a day one goal. So maybe I'll, I'll go to the next question. So how do you go about building proof of work from managing your own portfolio? Um, could that be provided as credentials in an interview or a fundraise tools, record keeping, presenting returns? Um, I'd say, you know, it's really tough. It's it's really hard to say your own portfolio is your track record when you're actually fundraising, maybe with some friends and family when you're in more informal conversations before you get going. That could be helpful, though I do think it is the most important proof of work for yourself and any future foray. Um, so the way to go about building your proof of work is literally managing money, not a paper portfolio. It has to be something where you feel the pain, Right. And I'd say further than just managing money, I'd say get to, and by the way, just to echo what Phil just said, there's a hundred percent chance you will struggle at some point. Um, so make sure when you're trying to build your proof of work, 
it includes one of those periods where you are in fact struggling. And, you know, after the fact, I mean, even uh, pay attention to like how you acted and how you expected yourself to act going in and reflect on that. And, you know, think about the quality of your decision-making when you are in the middle of struggles, because I think that's one of the most important things you have to be able to be prepared to handle for yourself. And if it's hard for you doing with your own money, it's going to be really hard doing it with other people's money. Um, and you learn a lot about yourself during those moments. And, you know, I think, uh, it's been pretty important. Um, that client I spoke about early who started with 50,000, he actually made his bigger investment after, um, we struggled because it's like, yeah, I just wanted to see how you guys would handle that. And I think for a lot of people, that's one of the most important proofs of work you could possibly provide show your metal through challenges. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think this is one of the easier questions we got because unfortunately, I just don't think that there is much value or, or, or any proof of work from managing just your own portfolio. So I think it's table stakes and completely required to have that background and, and the ability to talk about that kind of stuff if you're interviewing for a job somewhere, for sure. But in terms of like a proof of work in that here's why I'm going to be a good investor. I just don't think it's meaningful at all, unfortunately. And for it's for reasons related directly to what you just talked about. Elliot. We're jumping forward a little bit. Somebody else asked, what are the psychological impacts of managing other people's money? And the short answer is all of them. <laughs> like it's just the single biggest thing ever. So I, it's just, you know, it's like the difference between dating and getting married or something, right? It's just not, they're related, but it's just such a different ball game that I don't think you can compare one to the other. So you're right. Like a paper portfolio is fun if you're like a student. Um, I don't think it really does that much for you. You must manage real money. And if you're going to ever manage other people's money, you need to manage other people's money. And you got to do it as soon as possible if it's going to be any sort of proof of work, as the question put it. So I, I don't I don't know how else to address it other than that, unfortunately. What about Elliot? Did, that, did I cut you off or did that no, that was good, man. I think that was exactly right. I, I think totally. I mean, maybe if I could add one more thing to this idea of proof of work, I'd say focus on if you want to do this, like think about two words, repeatable and scalable, right? If you don't build a process that, that's repeatable and scalable, like, okay, maybe go, don't go out there and buy like some 20 million market cap micro cap and think you can manage like a bigger pool of money saying, Hey, look at my track record. Like it has to be repeatable and scalable. Right. And the, yeah, that, look, that's I, what I'd add. I know people that have transfer have transferred their personal account strategy and success into a fund. I'm not saying that's the issue at all. I'm just saying that I don't think it proves anything just because you've managed your PA to great success. I just wouldn't personally find that to be relevant at all in terms of your ability to manage a fund or manage other people's money. Well, so anyway, uh, somebody else just kind of chimed in on the back office stuff, how we're dealing with these issues. Again, I think we've pretty well covered that, but I would say, at least for me, um, it's been a great setup personally to have somebody who really makes that entirely their purview. So there are an increasing number of really good firms that are kind of outsourced white label kind of things where they will just completely handle all of your setup structuring back office needs. And I, I I know some people that have used them, and I think they're pretty good. I, I'm not recommending against them in any stretch, but you know, and because again, I think it's like catching lightning in a bottle to find somebody like Kristen that I did. So uh, that's easier said than done. I, I just that's to me like the ideal, and I just got very lucky in that regard. I do think you need. I think the the 
the one man shop who's trying to do it all and the back office on top of it, it's a lot, right? I mean, you just have to be cognizant of the fact that you're going to be spending at a minimum many hours a week and probably several hundred hours a year dealing with back office stuff. And so there's only so many hours in the day and you just have to be cognizant of the fact. And to me, that's a very good place to make a trade-off, right? And it gives me comfort that somebody who's smarter and better at doing that is in fact doing that job. So to me, that's that's been great. But I don't know about, what do you think, Elliot? 100% agree. My partner, Jason, handles the back office and operations and our relationships with various vendors. And it's a huge uh, like burden off my shoulders. Um I, I I can't really add much to that. You know, we addressed some of the operational stuff. I think, um, you know, when you are managing portfolios, it's a all-consuming job, a full-time job, and the more you could give to it, the better your head will be, and the better results you'll get out of it. Uh, I, I I'm a big believer in decision fatigue, and the more things you have to make decisions about, too. Um, I think the worse off you are in life. I think that's validation for why Steve Jobs wore that same black turtleneck every day, right? You don't want to. You just don't want to have to make a lot of decisions. I think. Uh, President Obama has said something similar. And, um, you know, I'm a big believer in that. I, I think simplifying so that you can focus on making the decisions that matter uh, actually leads to good results. Um, and, you know, just to, again, on, on the back office stuff, like work with really high quality vendors. Don't try to cut corners. Um, there are a lot of solutions that will be far more uh, encompassing than you'll actually need as an emerging manager and they'll charge you a lot for them. So don't waste time with those kinds of solutions too. There are a lot of good point solutions out there. So spend your time doing some research on it or you know, if you have a partner or a admin, uh, someone to run operations, have them spend time researching like the best point solutions for things. I find some of these like all-encompassing solutions are incredibly cumbersome and take a lot more time and a lot more lift than you'd otherwise want to actually uh, deal with. So uh, I, I didn't say that at first, but that definitely comes to mind in thinking about some solutions that had not worked uh, totally well for us in the back office. Agreed. And I bet you want to tackle this next one on Fintwit, don't you? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we addressed the second part of the question a little bit about having a label such as Dando and explaining a strategy, but how has Fintwit affected your investment process idea source, uh, sourcing and brand building? And I'd say, you know, I have been learning in public from day one, right? Fintwit's been a big part of that, putting my stuff out there, putting my thoughts out there, taking the heat and kind of addressing critiques has been incredibly helpful. Um, I've met people who have been, uh, you know, formers of companies I've invested in who've become very helpful information sources. And I've been very, you know, keen on making sure I give back as much as I get. Um, I think, you know, if you want to approach FinTwit, approach it from the perspective of how do I add value, not how do I take out value. And if you do that, you will get immense value out of it. I've sourced some great ideas off it, though, you know, I will repeat my phrase from every podcast about idea sourcing. You have to make it your own. Don't just take an idea and think that some analyst knows what they're talking about, because there are some people, especially you know, anonymous or pseudonymous ones who very well might be like a teenager sitting at a computer at home who's quite bored. You just don't know until you actually know. But there are some outstanding people who are anonymous and pseudonymous, some people I know very well. Um, some of the best analysts I know are out there. I think it's great. As for brand building, I think brand building is an interesting way to phrase it. I think it's very helpful. I think it's in, it's uh, 
helpful and harmful. Like the risk of it is you become associated with a certain idea and some people might fear you can't change your mind on it. I know where I stand in my heart of hearts, but other people might question you on that. Um, in terms of brand building, just as someone who's thoughtful, who's willing to share, who's you know a positive force there, hopefully that's something that's pretty helpful and constructive and keeps people coming to you um, and wanting to be uh, part of the adding and sharing of value. So, you know, approach it with that lens and I think great things will happen. And um, that's how I'd put it for now. Yeah. I, I probably have more of a love hate relationship with Twitter than, than you guys do, or maybe just Elliot, I won't speak for John, but um, I, I fully acknowledge all the things you just mentioned. And, and some of the best advice I think I've ever gotten about it was from my friend Nadav who said, you know, it's probably a good idea to just say never, never say anything negative about anyone or anything. And like, you'll just stay out of so many unnecessary time wasting nonsense fights or whatever. Like it, it's probably a good way to, to live on Twitter. I think it's just such a sewer pipe of negativity. And off and Twitter of too. What's that? Good way to live. Good way to live off good Twitter way, too. <laughs> good way to live off Twitter too. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think it just, I think it amplifies the reasons for doing it in real life, I think on Twitter. But, you know, so I, I echo your sentiments. I mean, there's some great people on there. It's amazing the kind of information you can find on there. I use it for all kinds of stuff. I do try to limit my time on it just because it seems, I am kind of baffled by the number of people that are on Twitter, like I will generally use it to like see what's happening in the world first thing in the morning. And, you know, maybe later in the day at one point or another, and and I'll spend like a dedicated amount of time, like scrolling through it. And then I'll click through to stuff that I'm interested in to save it for later that I actually want to read and think about it. But I'm stunned at the number of people that seem to spend like hours and hours and hours a day, like tweeting, replying to stuff, getting into like deep back and forth on stuff. And it's like, how do you get anything else done? Like, I just find that part of it really strange. So I, that's where I would say is, as, as I've gotten further along in this, you know, unfortunately the best answer to lots of questions is it depends. And the best way to analyze a lot of things like this is also that it's a double-edged sword. So I think there's a lot of benefits to FinTwit. I think there's a lot of drawbacks to FinTwit and I'm just increasingly aware of all of them. I mean, again, I, you know, before Twitter really existed, you know, I was a new analyst just trying to figure things out and stumble across things like message boards and the Value Investors Club and whatever. And I very quickly realized that I knew some of the people who were posting anonymously on Value Investors Club and they were complete bozos and yet they got lots of attention and lots of things seemed to kind of come from them. And it was, it was odd to me. So I've just always been like a little jaundiced in, in sourcing ideas in that way. So what I would do is exactly the way Elliot described it, maybe to an even more extreme degree is if I come across something on Twitter or anywhere else for that matter, I'll write it down. I keep a very uh, old fashioned physical notebook of all the things I'm working at and looking on. I'll just write it down and I'll write down the merits of the idea and try to ignore where it came from for as long as I possibly can, maybe forever, right? I, I literally won't attribute it so that I don't come with a bias of like, this is some bozo on Twitter. Uh, I'll just try to evaluate as it comes. And then I'll use Twitter to connect with people or to source information or resources or whatever. And for that, I think it's really great. In terms of like pounding in things like, you know, the old trope about, you know, whatever you're shouting out, you're pounding in. That's really true on Twitter. I try not to do that. And I think it's, it's helped me, I you know, in terms of getting into like disputes and fights and like, reinforcing your your pre-existing beliefs and biases. I think that's a big deal and really dangerous. But look, I think the brand building thing is very legit, right? I mean, somebody mentioned that. And I think it is really 
a good place to like have a presence and, you know, be out there and connect with people and, and build your brand, so to speak. I don't know what that, that really gets for you, but it, it, it is a good place for that. Yeah, I would say, you know, I have gotten to know a lot of people through Twitter and actually folks that I wouldn't know otherwise that I now hold in very high esteem simply because of what they do on Twitter. They share things that I find valuable. And so over time, you know, they basically have risen uh, in my mind as experts in, in, in various things. And I think, you know, if you look at it that way, it can result in opportunities, but it doesn't replace, um, you know, real life uh, kind of offline relationship building with people who are going to give you money. I think Twitter is great for um, partnerships, for learning, for getting to know like-minded people. Um, you're not necessarily going to get an investment directly uh, via Twitter, so I wouldn't expect that. And I think another thing that's important to keep in mind is just to, um, you know, use Twitter in a way that does not impair your ability to think independently. I think there's definitely a danger of kind of becoming part of that herd, um, whatever herd it is, there's many herds on Twitter. Um, but still, I think, you know, just kind of also having some time off Twitter uh, is important and not necessarily sharing everything because there might be some things that um, if they get attacked um, or, you know, reinforced, you could end up in a worse position uh, because you may not be able to change your mind as easily. So, uh, but with all that said, uh, for me, Twitter has been a huge positive. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it, the good probably outweighs the bad, but some days I think it's the opposite. Anyway, um, moving on. I mean, this, this is probably that we've talked about this a lot, so I won't dwell on it too much, but what are the psychological impacts of managing other people's money? Does it affect your investment? And the answer to that is absolutely 100% yes. It affects, it affects your investment. And if you don't have some experience in doing it, if you don't have the right stomach and temperament to do it, and if you're not aware of it, I mean, that's just a recipe for disaster. So the psychological impacts are huge and they're enormous. I mean, it, it's like managing other people's money versus managing your own is like the difference between babysitting someone else's children and having your own children, which is kind of in reverse. So maybe not the best analogy, but um, it, it's just <laughs> enormous. And so um, I, I don't have like a pithy quote or a way to sum this up other than to say that this is probably the single most important issue, uh, that we're talking about on this, this whole little podcast here. And I, I just think everybody should take the time they need to, you know, internalize it and deal with it and prepare for it and do it as quickly as they can. Well, I'd say it's probably the proximate cause of the fact that I'm no longer managing other people's money. It was just so incredibly hard uh, to deal with the volatility, and I'm somebody who likes to be very concentrated, and uh, I have zero problems of uh, having a very volatile portfolio with my own money, but it's much harder with other people's money, and especially if then the calls start coming in, and uh, I'll just, uh, one anecdote out of uh, quite a few that at some point, I guess, tips the scales for me, but um, I had found what I thought was 
just an incredibly a great investment uh, for the fund. And I put a large uh, position in this stock at $1. And um, my biggest investor in the fund at the time basically insisted that we talk about ideas and you know he wanted to know the thesis and he thought it was the dumbest thesis ever. And sure enough, over the next few months, this stock proceeded to drop to 50 cents a share. And, you know, I, I felt like a complete idiot because here, here was this person who was my biggest investor, who was a much more experienced person in the financial industry, who had told me that this was a, a shitty idea, and the market was agreeing with him. And so I started to really doubt myself. And so when this thing got back to a dollar, I basically just sold the position without even thinking about it. And in the next couple of years, this thing went to $20 a share. So, you know, that was that was one example where managing other people's money was just super difficult uh, psychologically. One other thing I'd point out that can be helpful in this regard, it's worked for me anyway, is I have a board of advisors. It's three people. Uh, one of whom is my former boss, one of whom is kind of a mentor who's, you know, a little bit older than I am and has been doing this for about 20 years with enormous success. And another one is kind of one of my closest professional and personal friends who's roughly my age and, and basically launched on the exact same day I did. So none of them, one of them actually has an investment in the fund, but none of them are getting paid. None of them really have any meaningful skin in the game in that regard. Uh, they do all presumably want to see me do well and and care about that. And we we talk about a lot of ideas, but it, it really helps when something like what happens to John, what happened to John happens to you and you can call somebody up and say, hey, you know, talk me off the ledge here, walk me through this. Like, what should I do? That kind of stuff. It's just enormous. And, and if you're, if you get into your own head and, you know, the demons start talking, you know, some bad stuff can happen. So um, I, I really recommend that that framework to people. Yeah, I'd echo that. I mean, I've talked about how when I bought Roku, it went down uh, every day for three weeks. And, you know, I was calling it the, you know, Hanukkah gift of 2018. And meanwhile, I'm getting letters from only a small sub, like a couple clients, not very many, but just one is enough to be like, what am I doing? The clients are like, well, how can you buy this thing? And it's going down every day. And I'm sitting here thinking like, I want to buy more of it. And yet I'm getting questioned by a couple of people. What do I do? Um, and that's one of the hard parts of having like SMAs where people see everything at all times too. Um, it's not just like the portfolio. It's like this one stock gets singled out. And meanwhile, it's been, I think, the single largest contributor to our returns yet. So it's quite challenging to be questioned, uh, especially when something's like new in there before you've had a chance to show that it, it, it might work. Um, I also think, you know, um, we had since created a fund. Uh, so we started with the SMAs, but we created a hedge fund. And in the fund, it's effectively, um, you know, we seeded it with mine and my partners, like the vast majority of our own net worth, um, like, you know, 90% of it. And effectively, the idea was, um, this is how I invest my own money and you could come along for the ride or not and, you know, just view it through that prism. And while that's a way to kind of absolve some of the fears of uh, and psychological impacts of managing other people's money, 
um, it still like sits there. Uh, you still like think about it and um, there's no good way to make it totally the same. I, I, I feel like your babysitting example, because I think it's, you know, while opposite, it's somewhat truthful and that, you know, it's, it, it's just very, very hard. Um, I think it's the single hardest part of doing this. I think it's the reason why a lot of the greatest managers, uh, when they hit a certain level of accomplishment will return outside capital and manage their own money because we're all here driven by our own, uh, I mean, I mean the best people in the industry are driven by intellectual, uh, rather than monetary goals. Um, so if that's the case at a certain point, you don't need other people's money to pursue, um, you know, more money, right? You don't need it to pursue intellect. You get to just do it on your own. Uh, so I think that's the evidence. That's the proof that, uh, even for the best of, uh, managers ever, that psychology impacts how you, how you manage your own portfolio. So, you know, don't think you're unique, uh, if you're sitting there, uh, having had some doubts about yourself because you're managing other people's money. Yeah. And I'll give you a good example too, of some, some light, some hope at the end of all this bleakness we're talking about, which is that, uh, last year I was, this would have been August or September of 2020. I was coming through a relatively disappointing stretch there, you know, into, and then coming out of the pandemic. And, uh, one of my LPs, this was actually the only time I've been lucky in this regard. The only time somebody's ever redeemed for me for performance reasons. Yeah. This guy has known me for a long time. We used to work together. Um, he called me up and basically just said, Hey, you know, you suck. I'm out. Like I, I kind of want to, I want to redeem. And that's a, you know, that's a call we all dread. It's an email we all dread. It, it doesn't feel good, obviously, but it's, you know, occupational hazard. And so it certainly bothered me. You know, I definitely didn't sleep much that night and I woke up the next morning and I was over it. Right. I mean, I, I just kind of knew that the way I was positioned and the way the portfolio looked and, and what I was doing made sense to me. And sure enough, ever since uh, that notice, it's been kind of a one-way ship up to my benefit, which is great. I don't attribute that to any genius. I think it was just kind of the the timing of it. So, you know, thankfully, I, whereas like I think six, seven, eight, ten years ago, had that happened, it would have knocked me for more of a loop, right? So I do think the more experience you get, the older you get, the more you get into this, the more you can kind of overcome those body blows. Hundred percent. Should we jump to the next one? Sure. Is that one yours? What is it like to raise capital? Yep. Oh, yeah. So it's all me. Okay. What is it like to raise capital for the first time? What advice would you give university students interested in becoming money managers? Slightly separate questions, but uh, somewhat related in ways. Um, raising capital for the first time is, uh, I'd say, two words challenging and exciting. And they're the opposite ends of this spectrum, right? It's challenging because, you know, asking people to trust you with their hard earned wealth is a big ask. And you know, one of the things I could have said earlier, I actually have this belief that with high net worth clients, the longer it takes them to come in, the better clients they are. So knowing that now, thinking back, like the first people to make the decision, they very well had things not gone well in the beginning, could have been the first to leave, right? So I think I think the quicker you go in, the quicker you can go out. When you take a long time, you're a little more mentally committed to coming in. Um, so I think the, the slower someone gets to a decision, the better. 
Um, and it's exciting in so far as, you know, you get to meet a lot of people, ask a lot of questions, uh, get asked a lot of questions. And when you get the first yes, it's like, you know, an exuberant experience, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, you know, so I think it's, um, also humbling because yeah, I probably should have said that first. It, it really is humbling because holy cow, you will face a lot of no's before you get any, any yeses. Um, even from the same people who eventually will say, yes, you will hear no a lot. Um, it's a contact sport. Your conversion rate is not going to be very high. Um, and so you are going to face, uh, numerous disappointments before having a single success. Although, you know, maybe you're doing this because first there were a couple people who are like, Hey, I'm willing to give you a shot. So go for it. Um, but yeah, there, there's just so many, you just have to get used to hearing no in a million different ways. Also ranging from outright ghosting you to excuses like, Oh, the time's not right. Um, to, you know, I actually don't believe in the process or sorry, I don't like you, <laughs> uh, which they might not say as bluntly, but you know, they effectively say in, in a more veiled way, um, all those things will happen. So you have to be prepared to like, shrug each one off and go on to the next one. And, um, you know, that's not easy. Um, in terms of advice uh, to give university students interested in becoming money managers, I'd say the single best thing, and I saw this from a young kid recently, pursue great mentors. Like people in this industry, the good people really want to help you out. Uh, bad people don't want to waste their time helping anyone. So they're not going to become your mentor anyway. <laughs> I mean, really, find good mentors, find people who you can learn from, find people who you could ask like stupid questions to and not feel dumb, who won't put you down and who will actually give you like thoughtful, nice answers, steer you in the right direction. Uh, good mentors teach you and they open doors for you. And I think there's nothing better. Uh, I, I think that's one of the greatest things I've, I've seen in the industry. Once I finally got past my first like hurdles, I've, I've had some great people who've been like more than willing to share their time, their experiences, they will humble themselves in sharing some of the things they've done wrong. And I think that's really helpful. Like, you know, it's, it's priceless. I think mentorship, like it's out there, go get it. If you're truly serious, it's, it's really not that hard to find someone who will kind of like take you under their wing and, and, and give you a little hand along the way. Um, I'd also say like, you know, be uh, focused. I, I think adopt the view I took, um, get, try to get better every day. Understand that there's no one like no one in this industry is, is anything other than human. Um, there's no one who's like, you know, the best that will necessarily stay that way forever. Don't like put anyone on a pedestal, uh, be think broadly and learn and learn and learn and approach it with like an attitude, uh, that, you know, uh, of honesty. And I think, um, you know, I guess one last thing, uh, be self-reflexive, like start getting to know yourself and start being very self-aware and ask yourself, how am I feeling? And it might even help to journalists, but like, I think it's really important to be self-aware and understand, uh, which emotions are acting on you in different situations. Um, so try to get to know yourself. That's really hard when you're in university. I feel like you're trying to find yourself, but try to get to know yourself. Um, how about, how about you guys? Yeah, I think I agree with everything you said about raising capital. It, it, I like the position of responsibility. I like having other people trust me to do a good job. So that part of it is 
gratifying and exhilarating and you definitely need a thick skin for all the hundreds of times you're going to hear no. So if somebody, you know, is just straightforward about it and says, no, that's great. You know, no problem. I mean, that, that part of it, I think you'll, you'll get over relatively quickly, but you do have to be prepared for it and and definitely just avoid the planning fallacy in general. It's going to take longer. It's going to be harder. You'll raise less than you generally expect. Right. So just kind of come prepared from that perspective and, and you'll be fine. Um, then, you know, in terms of building fundraising momentum, a related question there, you know, boy, I, I think we've touched on this enough. I don't think I have a ton else to add there, nor do I think I'm much of an expert. Um, so, but yeah, in terms of the second question, what would you advise university students? Um, yeah, again, we've talked about this a, a good bit too. I would say beyond just getting to brass tacks as quickly as you can, you often see people kind of window dressing their resume, like, oh, I'm just going to go do this stint at XYZ for a few years and that'll really position me well and it doesn't really have anything to do with investing or it's really far afield. That can be fine, but you know, just don't let two years turn into 20 because life goes by pretty quickly. I would say dive in as quickly as you can with good people. Don't worry about your salary. Don't worry about your bonus. Don't worry about your title. Just find some good people. Find some mentors, like Elliot said, as quickly as you can. Get into a real investing environment, ASAP. Manage your own portfolio. And if you want to manage other people's money, start managing other people's money as quickly as, as, as you realistically can. That may not be immediately out of university. It may not be within the first year or two or 10. Everybody has their own time horizon, right? But uh, the sooner, the better. I would say in that regard and just read, you know, beyond the the importance of men- mentorship, I would say just read constantly and and as broadly and deeply as you possibly can. I think those are the things that that worked really well for me. Um so John, I'll let you jump in if you want to, otherwise I'll I'll dive into the next one which is an interesting yeah, go one. Ahead. I think it's relatively straightforward is the level of difficulty for an emerging manager getting more challenging due to the availability of expensive and premium primary research services, sell-side resources and introductions, alternative data sets um, that more established or larger managers have access to, and how does an emerging manager compete? It's somewhat related to the prior question. So I would say the level of difficulty is not getting higher or worse for an emerging manager. I think it's always been hard. I think there was maybe a period of time you know, when the industry was a little more nascent, where maybe it was easier. I think that also suffers from the, I walked uphill both directions in the snow to school kind of line of thinking. I think it's always been hard. So thinking that you have it worse than everybody else in in recorded history is probably wrong. So, but I, yeah, I don't think it's getting more difficult, at least for the reasons cited. I mean, I think if anything, those reasons have leveled the playing field and just exacerbated the the, the paradox of skill that, you know, everyone has access to information, ubiquitous information. So yes, there are more resources out there and a lot of them are expensive, but you know, at the same time, it's really the information itself that you're after and it's, it's never been easier to gather primary information. So I don't really see it as having gotten more difficult. Um, and, I, and again, I just, in the cases where it is ostensibly and very clearly much more difficult to compete and where that information advantage is very real, um, you know, the, the examples I cited earlier are something like, you know, there's a, there's a couple tremendous funds where all they do is buy biotechnology and pharmaceutical companies when like a phase three trial fails or something. And they're able to better assess those odds than anyone else. Cause they have an army of molecular biology PhDs on staff. I sure, sure as hell would want to compete against them. Right. So avoiding those kind of things, I think is how you compete. Uh, you know, it's, it's flipping the problem upside down, but that, that would be my answer to that. Yeah, I would, 
take both sides of this. And so far as like, in terms of some resources, there are some really great inexpensive resources. So I'll give you an example. When I started and I wanted to get financial data into Excel, I would type up a ticker on Morningstar, export their harmonized data, which is absolutely terrible. I then have to go through the actual filings and add in any like granularity to any of the lines and make you know the appropriate adjustments. And it was really cumbersome and difficult. Um, and you know that was the free version of Morningstar because we were bootstrapping and trying to do it on the cheap. Uh, then we got a Bloomberg and we're like, okay, this is easy. We'll you know could export a lot easier. Um, and then it was like actually. You know, today Coifin is free and it's way better and has much like greater, uh, more granular information than something like Morningstar does even, um, and gives you a lot more tools at the touch of your fingertips. Um, and so something like that wasn't there. Twitter wasn't really as deep as it is now where there's like great information in real time. Um, there are so many different unique, quirky data sets that are both free and or very cheap and inaccessible. So I'd say be creative trying to find uh, data sources. I'll give one example, something like SEMrush could give you a lot of what you could get from one of the web data portals uh, that cost, you know, uh, something that would cost five figures could cost in the three digits, right? That's a really big difference. And I think it could get you 80% 80% of the way there. And, you know, it doesn't even cover the same ground. So you could get unique insights in other areas. So, you know, get a little plug there or something that I'd say is, you know, an untapped resource. Uh, thanks to a couple of friends for giving me the shout out on that one. But, um, you know, I think the part that's more challenging is it is a little harder for emerging managers, I think, now to uh, get traction in the institutional world. Um, I don't know why I can't put my finger on the pulse exactly, but you know, um, when I think emerging manager, I think people that are starting with like I don't know, fifty million or less, maybe a hundred million or less. But there are like a bunch of new launches that you know Phil talked about this in the very beginning that are starting with you know five hundred million or more, and they're calling themselves emerging managers. Um, so the capacity for those kinds of funds to absorb flows uh, are much greater. And so, you know, when you're a big endowment, you have a lot of money. So it's worth spending your time more with some of these larger funds. And so I think having raised the bar on what it means to have a startup fund in the more like institutionalized uh, segment of the industry has made it harder for like the smaller underlings to kind of more organically grow and get there. And I think the other thing that's quite hard is a lot of the institutional managers who talk about uh, looking, uh, sorry, a lot of the institutional allocators who talk about looking for emerging managers will say things like, we want people who are outsiders, who think differently, who are like creative. And I think that's, you know, good. And I do think they're genuine and honest in that approach, but they want very simple businesses and they don't want anyone with any encumbrances, but it's really hard to be an outsider who thinks differently to get started in this industry without having some sort of encumbrances of your past, whether it be managing two mandates at once, because it was the only way you could really like get scale to kind of cover your cost base and make an honest living. Uh, You know, like, great. We all want people who could say no to every LP, but that doesn't exactly exist in the real world. Uh, When you're starting pretty small and bootstrapping something, it's a little different than when you're starting on third base. Um, so, you know, I, I think that side is really hard and really challenging. And, you know, the, the quest to uh, 
get to scale is very different than the quest to get to profitability. So I don't, but again, I'm speaking in some ways from a position of naivety because I didn't try this 20 years ago. So I don't know if it would have been easier back then, but it just feels that way. It seems that way uh, for whether I'm right or wrong. I'd say it's, it's hard also because of how many emerging managers are out there. I think probably more than ever. And it's quite easy to set up as an emerging manager. So there's just a lot of managers who are doing the same thing and there's not enough differentiation. So I think what you really got to think about is how are you going to be truly different? You know, I, I've seen hundreds, maybe even over a thousand emerging managers in the last several years. And, um, do you know how many times I've heard that we fish in small caps because it's underfollowed and under-researched, but then I, I hear that from over 100 emerging managers that they fish in small caps, and I know for a fact that many small caps have you know, more emerging managers looking at them per unit of market cap than do large caps. So, you know, it, it, it may sound clever, but I guarantee you uh, the institutions that meet with tons of managers they've heard those stories all the time and um, it, it actually pays to talk to a lot of other managers as well just to kind of hear that you're not that special unless you really think about that and make that a focus to to carve out some kind of an edge um, and something different. And if you have something truly different, then a lot of these issues are not going to be so pertinent to you, like others having access to research services and alternative data sets and such. You're going to have your own niche where you're going to build a process that's that's different, and you're going to be getting signal that others are not getting. So I would definitely just recommend every manager to spend more time on really thinking about how they're differentiated um, and not just use those simplistic explanations like, you know, I, I look uh, in small caps where it's underfollowed. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things to express in a lot of ways, but it's so true. That's a really good point, John. And that's one of the things that everyone wants to uh, hear. And that's where branding like Dando goes very far. Um, where you're able to take something and really simplify it and make it memorable uh, too. Um, so yeah, I think that's very helpful. Uh, Phil, did you have any more to add on this or should we go to the, the next and last question? No, I think that covers it on my end. Okay, so, and uh, here we go. Um, it's, it's actually a few questions, so maybe uh, we break this up, but um, how long a track record do you need? Um, how long is the process from idea to first trade? What third parties do you need and where do you find them? Uh, do you need a partner or can you be solo? How did you work out your opportunity cost to know it's worthwhile? Um, so many of these uh, follow-up questions were answered or addressed along the way. I think the track record question is a really good one. Um, and one of the things I was told by a family friend when I first started was, I'll invest in you, not with you, in you, if you survive five years. 
And, you know, I think he's someone who understands business and knows like, you know, what I forgot the exact stat, but like 90% of small businesses don't make it five years. So he's like, if you survive, you're obviously doing something right. And you have a level of dedication. He didn't even say like, I want to see great returns. It was merely the threshold was survive five years. And I think there's a lot of relevance to that because obviously without a track record uh, that's that's viable, um, you can't survive five years, right? You're you're going to put yourself out of business. Your clients are going to leave you if you're not performing and you're not going to get new clients if you're not performing. So, you know, this idea I think uh, has stuck with me ever since. Um, by the way, he invested after year three, so he gave up a little sooner. I don't know what changed things, but like, you know, I think that's stuck in my head. I, I really do think five years is a good uh, way to phrase it, where by at the end of five years, you really want to have something that uh, establishes that you will not perish and you will do this for the rest of your life. Um, and I think you have one chance to ever try to launch your own investment firm or fund, uh, unless you're John Merriweather. Like, I really think you only have one chance to ever do it. And so you really want to have everything totally aligned, totally set up and hit it right. Uh, get everything together just right. Um, so, you know, uh, setup costs, that's a tough question. Setup costs, you could do what, you know, if you want to start with an RAA, you could do it incredibly lean where you do the filings yourself. You have very minimal minimal legal expense. You basically just have to pay the state filing fees for various things. Um, and so you're not even talking about thousands. You're talking about like, you know, something pretty small. Um, opportunity cost really depends on what where you're coming from and what else you could do. Um, and, you know, the process from idea to first trade, I mean, it could be quick. It, it, it might not be, but hopefully it doesn't take you much more than like you could, you, you could do the startup work while you're doing something else. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think of it as from, it's really hard to say from idea to first trade. Um, there's no one right answer. There might be someone who grew up thinking like, this is what I'm going to do at the end of the day, but um, you know, I, I think you could legitimately, if you said today, right now, I want to get started and, you know, when would my first trade be? I think you could get there within six months if you hustled. Um, but, you know, I'd, I'd prefer to make sure you do everything totally right than do it in an expedited fashion. So I don't, I don't know if that's exactly, uh, you know, the most important thing per se, like the speed. Um I think it's really helpful to have a partner, whether it be like me with with my partner, Jason, or what Phil's talking about with Kristen, where you have someone who um, could handle a lot of the burden on and, and pardon the lack of a better word. But I do when you want to manage money, uh, the administrative side, the operation side is a burden. And so. Um, you know, someone who could handle that to free you up to focus, uh, because I think that's one of the most important things. Um, so those are some of my thoughts. How about you guys? Yeah, I would say going back to the track record question, I don't have a number. I think even something like five years can be completely dominated by noise. Um, like I said, I mean, some of the people I admire most in this business would have looked like total morons over pretty meaningful five-year periods. And I don't think that would have been the right conclusion to draw from that. So in terms of validation of anything, I don't think there is a number that's anything in the single digits. That's for sure. I think the questioner may have been getting a little bit more into like, what's it going to take to get over the hump? And I think you're 
story is pretty good, Elliot, and that if people can see that you've suffered through it for a few years and had some ups and downs and come out the other side, that is probably enough. So I think that's probably a pretty good answer for that. In terms of, you know, what does it cost to get set up and running? I mean, again, you know, you can spend hundreds of thousands of dollars. Somebody else asked how long it would take. Um, I would say to both plan for more, right? Plan to be wrong. So I, I don't think it's realistic to go from saying go to being up and running in anything less than six months. I think three to four months would be really, really pushing it. And I think a year would be ideal if you could if you could manage it. But certainly six months seems like a good if in slightly aggressive target on the short end. And in terms of money, yeah, look, I mean, you could spend if you really wanted to, you could spend hundred thousand or more just on the legal docs and the legal formation side of things. If you, if you really wanted to, but you can certainly do it for a lot less. So, you know, it gets back to the bootstrapping side of things that we talked about. So I wouldn't let the operational setup side of the thing. I think the, the barriers to entry on that side are very manageable and, and very low. So I wouldn't let that be a deter- deterrent to anybody. The question about how did you work out your opportunity cost to know it's worthwhile is a fascinating one. And maybe the second most important thing we've covered on this whole thing there is no calculation of the opportunity cost that would really justify this on a short-term present value kind of basis because the base rate of success is very low. The odds you're facing at every step along the way are very long. And I think people are really seduced by the lottery ticket style nature of reading stories about XYZ fund manager has this huge pile of AUM and rakes in gobs of money every single year. And obviously that's very true. And that speaks more to, in my opinion, the structural flaws of the business than anything else. So I, I don't think if that even enters your mind, I, I don't know if that's a great sign. Like I, I think if you're, because the opportunity cost is enormous. I mean, if you're any good at this job, which presumably you are, or would need to be to be successful, you could make a lot of money working for somebody else right now. And if you go do it for yourself, again, unless you're launching with some huge pile of AUM, you're going to forego that, right? I mean, you're going to be in the hole right away. So you know, and then you're going to have to get the odds right that like the ultimate payoff is going to emerge in year three or year 13 or whatever it takes. Right. So I, I don't see how that math would ever really be all that favorable. And I think the only reason to do it is because you just have a burning desire to do it because you really be, you really want to be the one calling the shots and trying to make a dent in things and do it your own way and set a good example and, and have that responsibility. If you're doing it, strictly as a financial calculation, which again, I think is very understandable because it is a very lucrative business model in a lot of settings. And I think people are well aware of the fact that many, many funds, thousands of funds were launched and produced. You know, Even if it was just a few, two, three, four, five years of a pretty good run, that's more than enough to make a life-altering amount of money. I think people are well aware of that. But for me, that's not necessarily a sign of sustainability over the longer haul. So those, those are the things I would point out. Yeah, I'd say that unless you have a bunch of capital locked up uh, to start, you probably don't want to do it if you don't love investing and and wouldn't do it anyway. Um, if you have a lot of capital that you can raise just because of your background or relationships, then you know you're going to be off uh, to the races with a pretty good uh, economic model. But um, if you don't love this and you don't have capital locked up, you're going to be in for a really rough time. And uh, just a a point on track record, um, you know, the truth ends up being that for most people, it's not going to be the track record that'll 
make you successful because it's going to be within, you know, a few percentage points of the index return one way or the other. And so you're going to be growing your firm and getting money based on other factors, your ability to build relationships with people, to build trust, uh, maybe to be seen as a thought leader, to put out uh, really good research, because ultimately nobody who is investing with you is getting your track record. They're only getting your future track record, which nobody knows. So everyone's just guessing what you might do in the future. And, um, you know, unless your past track record record is really so good uh, for the right reason that it's pretty much obvious you're going to continue to do extremely well, everyone's just just really guessing. And uh, so kind of focusing also on some of those other factors that are going to drive success beyond track record, I think is uh, pretty important as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, the future track record in contrast to the past. And so, you know, build relationships, do it for the long term and have the right head on your shoulders. Um, any other questions you guys wanted to consider in this or any any extra thoughts or ground that we should have covered that we haven't? No, I think it. I, I hope this is a good resource for people. I get this kind of question from friends or, you know, friends of friends, like I said, at least a half dozen times a year. And I'm, I'm happy to always help people if I can and share the things that people have shared with me and, and pay it forward in that regard. So if there is interest in that, please reach out. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot we haven't covered, but we wanted to address the questions that came in first. And maybe um, at some point in the future, we'll do another one of these um, to talk more because there's just so many aspects to being an emerging manager. I, I, I do think we touched on a good range of them, but obviously one could go a lot deeper into uh, many of these topics. We are certainly uh, out of time or out of our normal uh, time for this podcast, but I think this is going to be somewhat of an evergreen uh, resource uh, for folks. So Thanks, Elliot and Phil, for a great episode, and thank you all for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.